<laughs> Worst thing That's you can okay. say is, can we edit that out? I think that might be the... <laughs> That's okay. I, I mean everything I say. Okay, perfect. This is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. <laughs> My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Culler, I am joined by a prominent mayor in Metro Vancouver, first elected to Port Coquitlam City Council in 2008 when he was 23 years old. He was re-elected in 2011 and 2014. He is a graduate of the University of Victoria and St. Francis Xavier University, and he recently completed a program in leadership at Harvard University. Keith Baldry has said that he will be a major political force. Jay Janauer is called in the new sheriff in town. And both Linda Steele and Sam Cooper agree he has been kicking up a dust storm and calling out political leadership in this province and in this country. A lifelong resident of the city where Terry Fox grew up. He is the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He is Mayor Brad West. Mayor West, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. To be honest, and no pressure... But I don't think I've ever been this excited for a podcast. That was a hell of an intro. (laughs) Could you sense my excitement? Is it radiating (laughs) off me? No, I mean, I've had some cool people on this show, people whose careers I followed for, you know, over a decade. But for some reason, this one, I'm I'm feeling the juju and the the magic in the air. And I'm I'm amped. I I feel it too. (laughs) You're you're an 85 baby, right? I am. So we're we're the same age. We're both finishing up our uh, Jesus here, thirty three. Um, but what's crazy is for me, I've always thought about mayors as people who are noticeably older than me, uh, and that's not to take anything away from you. I mean, you've mm-hmm. got a lot of experience in municipal government. You're well educated. You speak very well. You deserve to be in your role. At least eighty eight percent of your constituents or voting constituents seem to think so. Does it ever dawn on you that as like a millennial mayor, you're breaking down a lot of walls for our generation? Well, first I'm going to try and find the 12%. I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> you got to win them yeah, over. Yeah, that's right. Someone yeah. went wrong with uh, the 12%. Um, you know, it's been interesting being uh, a, a, quote, young person in politics. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I got elected to city council when I was 23, and youngest uh, city councilor in the history of Port Coquitlam, and then at 33, the youngest mayor in the history of Port Coquitlam. And so I, I've never really thought of what I'm doing in terms of breaking down barriers for for other young people, although I've I have always in my always in my political career tried to encourage um, other young people who I've interacted with to to run mm-hmm. to be involved, um, you know, and I've I have always tried to give some advice about how I've approached my role and how I've approached uh, all my campaigns. Uh, and how I think that translates to some success. And, and for me, it's been about not putting yourself in a box. I, I've seen a lot of other younger people, millennials, run, and they kind of run for office, uh, you know, rarely, but when they do, um, you know, I want to be the, the young person's voice on council. <laughs> or, you know, right. I want to bring the youth perspective. Yeah. And, and I've always thought that when you do that, you sell yourself short. Right. Because you have a lot to... To offer, I mean, we are, um, you know, we bring all of our experiences to um, to these roles. So, 
um, yeah, I bring the experience of being a 33-year-old who's grown up in Port Coquitlam my whole life. I bring the experience of being a dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a two-year-old son. Um, my education, you know, the work that I've done uh, professionally, um, you know, just the totality of your life experience. Uh, I mean, all of that comes to, to bear. And so, you know, I, I, I certainly am conscious of the fact that there's not a lot of other mayors who, who look like me. Sure. <laughs> and when I, you know, I go to mayor's council's meeting and I, I look around the table and, um, you know, it, it's noticeable. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, I have never felt that I'm treated differently. Um, That's I, good to hear. I, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I have to be honest, and, and I've never felt like I'm being patted on the head or, mm-hmm. you know, oh, oh, good for you. Isn't that nice that <laughs> we have a young person here? I feel, I feel like I have to walk it back because I just uh, put you in this box as this millennial mayor. <laughs> no, no, so I didn't no. mean that. By, no, no, by no, I, I, I don't, I don't, and... I, I don't take it. Um, you know, I don't take it. Uh, badly at all i mean <laughs> it, i am yeah um and i you know i think it's a good thing mm-hmm. um but i guess what i would say is i i think i'm a lot of other things too so sure. i don't i kind of, that's not how i define yourself I define myself is just through my age i've you know had a whole bunch of different experiences in my life and they all come to play in the decisions that I make and uh, in the things that I do as an elected representative. Mm-hmm. Well, you're certainly making the most of it. And I, I love the fact that you're taking every single opportunity, every platform, every time someone sticks a microphone in your face <laughs> to channel the frustration that a lot of British Columbians have when it comes to things like money laundering, the nature of Canada and China relations, and the corruption in our real estate market that a lot of people feel has been allowed to fester under the noses of our political leadership. And we're going to talk about all of that. But before I get to that, I feel like you're starting to become a household name in this province. Uh, but there's a lot of people, you know, outside of Port Coquitlam who don't really know sure. much about you. So right off the bat, where do you identify your politics on the, on the traditional left-right spectrum? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, an interesting question, and, and I won't be evasive. I'll, 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 I'll get around to answering <laughs> please, it. Please don't say I'm, I'm a balanced centrist <laughs> with pragmatic solutions. Oh, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think that's just a euphemism for people who are indecisive. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, you know, these days I kind of identify as a, a populist, and partly because it's become a bit of a, a dirty term or yeah, a dirty it has. word, Very right? Edgy. Like, yeah, people, you know, they think, oh, oh, Donald Trump is a populist. Donald Trump is not populist. No, he's a phony. Um, you know, populism to me um, has its roots. I think you know, on the left side of the political spectrum, mm-hmm. um, but it really is about. Um, giving voice to the voiceless, giving um, power to people who uh, haven't had power, uh, and and confronting, um, I I think, the status quo um, that, in my opinion, doesn't serve us well or doesn't serve the vast majority of people of our province very well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, I've been involved in politics for some time. Um, I got my start in politics in Port Coquitlam, um, campaigning for Mike Farnworth, um, NDP MLA. Okay. Cool. Um, and I worked for Mike as well, uh, for a period of time. And so, um, 
you know, that I guess has been my traditional political home. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean I haven't um, offered some critique of uh, the NDP uh, on numerous occasions. Sure. So, yeah. um, you know, the, in many respects, when I talk to, um, you know, uh, friends and, you know, people who aren't political, so to speak, but who have opinions, mm-hmm. it, it strikes me that, like, not a lot of people put themselves squarely on one part of the political spectrum and say, I'm this and I'm this on every single issue. Like, you know, what does it mean um, to be, you know, on the left or on the right? You know, like uh, how how does that actually relate to these issues that we're we're confronting Mm -hmm. uh, today? So, you know, is it a bit of an outdated way of identifying um, perhaps um but i just think that you know i i I try and approach issues not from i I don't approach issues really from an ideological perspective Mm -hmm. i approach issues and decisions from a values perspective i have certain values that i i cherish deeply and and believe in and those really are around uh, fairness um and a, a sense that um, government should be serving the common good mm-hmm. and not just private interest. And so, you know, there are times when that leads me to take positions on issues that some people might say, oh, that's kind of conservative. Um, or, you know, there's times when, you know, people would think, oh, geez, that guy might be on the far left. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it it's kind of, it, it's a really interesting question and it's one I've, I get asked quite a bit and, and I, you know, I try and answer it like this and it's not about being, you know, being evasive or not wanting to say, oh, I'm this or that. Um, I'm upfront about, you know, kind of where I have been uh, politically and, and where I would consider my political home. Um, but, uh, but I'm an independent thinker mm-hmm. and uh, I like to think for myself. I like to um, take each issue that comes and, and, and consider how my my values reflect upon that issue and, and kind of take it like that. Sure. Well, well, I think, I mean, regardless of maybe how you identify yourself on the political spectrum, I think your commentary recently on what's happening in this province has appealed to people across the political spectrum. Yeah, it, and, and I, you know, that's part of why I think that too often, like, you know, throwing that a label on yourself mm-hmm. is such a, a conversation stopper. Right. You know, because we're, you know, we're kind of um, conditioned, I guess, to seek out people who share our worldview. Absolutely. Or, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, you get this uh, sort of reinforcement. And, and that's my criticism of, I would say, political parties in British Columbia and in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> They they generally are are they should be you would think that they would be areas and places where you have the most amount of debate and discussion mm-hmm. about political ideas about issues about how to approach things and uh, you know I have not seen that I see that there there's way more emphasis placed on um, you know kind of uniformity and um, you know we're all kind of uh, you know unquestioning about <laughs> our the, the, the the fact that our party is the best. Yeah, and, it's right, tribalism for sure. Uh, absolutely, and so, um, you know, 
when I got 88% of the vote in the last municipal election, Port Coquitlam, mm-hmm. <laughs> that means there's a lot of different people in that group. You know, there's people who, who vote NDP, who vote liberal, who vote yeah. conservative. Um, you know, but there was something that I was saying there or was offering that they found attractive. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think starting from values to me is really key. Sure. One thing that you've been saying that has been attractive to a lot of people is how you fully concede that you're, quote, mad as hell, mm-hmm. uh, quote, completely angry. I mean, you're not pulling any punches, which I think does have a very attractive quality uh, in terms of what we look for in our politicians. For someone, uh, I was going to say maybe a millennial, but you know, I don't want to box anyone in, <laughs> into a category. For anyone yeah. who hasn't been paying attention to what's happening in this province right now, what is happening that's making you so angry that you feel like you have to use your platform to vociferously speak about something that is out of your outside of your jurisdiction. Sure. I think what's happening is we have an attack on the very core of our country, of our province. You know, we are kind of raised to believe that in Canada, in British Columbia, we have you know, the rule of law, mm-hmm. we have systems in place and, and, you know, we're kind of led to believe that the right thing will happen. Um, and what has been exposed over the last year or so um, is that there has been a rotting kind of core that has been allowed to fester and it has allowed people i think to take advantage of our our inaction our incompetence our disinterest when it comes to issues of um well i mean money laundering um you know real estate manipulation um, and this sort of, um, you know, just real kind of head shaking activities that have been allowed to go on with no one being held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about, you know, the, the numerous examples that exist out there now. Um, but when you read some of this about, you know, the fact that, for instance, in Richmond, a, uh, out of a small storefront, two people were able to launder over a billion dollars a year mm-hmm. in, in dirty money. And by dirty money, we mean money that has come primarily from the fentanyl trade, mm-hmm. the, from the dealing of fentanyl, um, the trafficking of fentanyl. And that they've been able to take that dirty money and and wash it clean. It's just, to me, it's just astounding that this can happen in this country where we're led to believe that things like that can't happen. Right. Um, this is the e-pirate investigation. Yeah, the, the e-pirate investigation. 
And they were taking money from all over the world. Sure. You know, you had money from <clears throat> um, organized crime in, in Asia, in Colombia, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's just, to me, it, it just strikes against so much of, of what we're, you know, so much of what we're, we're led to believe could never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of look at it this way, like, you know, we, we kind of have a, an unwritten promise, right? And, it, and the promise goes something like, okay, if you work hard, if you follow the rules, you know, if, if you make good decisions, mm-hmm. um, then you should be able to get ahead. Sure. Right? That's kind of the... That's the promise. The premise of, <laughs> yeah. you know, of, of Western society. Sure. Um, and for generations, that was largely true. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about my own family's, um, you know, very humble beginnings and, you know, each kind of successive generation, my grandparents to my parents and then my parents to my sister and I, mm-hmm. you know, every generation starting off in a better place than the previous generation. And for the first time, I think, in a, a long time, people feel that that's no longer guaranteed, mm. that hard work is not a determinant of whether you're going to be successful or not. And in fact, if you look at it, um, you know, all the statistics bear out that people are working harder than ever before, yeah. are more productive than ever before, mm-hmm. um, but are falling further and further behind. Incomes are stagnating. Um, and there's a real sense that, you know, the same opportunities that had existed before are not, are not there. And so I think people are, are, are tremendously frustrated by that. And then in the, in the context of, of that going on, you then see, well, there's this other group of people. And for them, there's rules that, I guess, apply to us, but not to them. Right. Um, and they're the folks that, you know, again, the people who are involved in the, who are subject to the pirate investigation. It is a, um, a wealthy class of, of people, um, some obviously from here, some from overseas, who have really turned British Columbia and Metro Vancouver into like their little playground. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one seems to be doing anything about it. So what, what it sounds like to me is, uh, and we'll talk about three main issues in, in particular. We'll talk about money laundering. We'll talk about what's been happening with Huawei. And we'll talk about diplomatic relations with Canada and China in general. But what it sounds like to me is that what's bothering you is this sense of institutional or governmental failure, whether it be negligence, mm-hmm. incompetence, or maybe even corruption. Is that fair to say yeah, in the, terms of the, yeah. a lot of commentary you've been giving lately? Uh, absolutely. Um, I am angry <laughs> about the government's inability mm-hmm. to stop this, right? And what has become clear is that these aren't isolated incidences. This mm-hmm. isn't like, um, oh, you know, we had someone who kind of slipped through the cracks and got away from us. Yeah. Like there's, it's just as a drip, drip, drip of more and more bad behavior 
and horror stories, quite frankly, that are being revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're the, having to be revealed by the media, by the way. Like the government, I, I just, I don't know. They, they just seem so lost. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're just overwhelmed, or or you know, and and your your mind is left to wander about. You know, how the hell could this go? Like, how could the hell could they have no, you know, no no sense of what's going on or, or be powerless to stop it? Right. And in the e-pirate investigation specifically, those charges were stayed because of a mistake that, that yeah. the Crown made. And it's so frustrating to know that, you know, one, they did put resources behind an investigation. They caught these guys. Yeah. We found out the scope of what they were doing and it was incredible. But then because of, the negligence of the crown, nothing happens now. Yeah. It's like, you know, government has been resistant um, looking at an inquiry. I know we'll talk about that, but they've kind of put out this idea that, well, we got to allow these cases to move forward. Mm -hmm. And so you have the, one of the biggest cases, uh, criminal cases, Going forward, you have everyone patting themselves on the back about, oh, what a great job we've done. We're, we're moving forward with charges. We've arrested these people. Mm-hmm. We're going to finally have some criminal accountability for what's happened. And just on the, when you're on the eve of, the, of this, you know, the grand crescendo of this all being able to come together and isn't this great? It falls apart in an instant. Yeah, all that work, you know, and... because of a of a mistake. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think, well, was it mis- a mistake? You know, and I, I I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that's the level. That's where we're at. Like, I mm-hmm. mean, that's that's how much faith people have lost in our system. Yeah, that that's a thought that runs across your mind. It, I'll be honest. It came across my mind like, you know, I I'm not an expert on crown councils, but it seems to me that they're a pretty professional group of people who seldom make mistakes. It seems like a a rookie mistake. Yeah. Well, not <laughs> right? the type of mistake you would expect in the one of the the single largest cases yeah. of money laundering in the history of Canada. Yeah. Right? And then a mistake gets made so so then these people just, what, <laughs> well, walk, well, walk free? I well, mean, well, setting aside even this, this crown mistake, I mean, when you have, like, as you did last summer, Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the provincial government's opposition, the, mm-hmm. the leader of the BC Liberals, refusing to turn over documents related to money, money laundering at the request of Attorney General David Eby. Yeah. It's hard not to say, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Like, aren't yeah. we in this together at, at yeah. some point? I, I just like, I understand know. politics, but... I don't know how someone gets away with shit like that. <laughs> like, how is that even accepted as, like, a reasonable position to take? Uh, like, I read that, I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, how can that even be a thing? Well, well and you, you, you read that and you hear about stuff like that, and then you see they're still polling pretty well. Right, there's still yeah. people that are going to vote for them, sure. And and it's like, so we're we're just not going to work together because we're on two different, you know, yeah. parties. Uh, it, it, it 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 is doing such a disservice to the people of this province. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about this, I mean, and there have been so many stories. I, I worry that people get numb to it. Sure, 
you know, you can't like, oh, okay, money laundering and, you know, well, what is money laundering and like, how does that impact me? And, mm-hmm. but I think about like, this is why I've been really trying to articulate that this is not, these are not victimless crimes, you know, yeah, and that's are, what I, there's a real human cost. That's what I want to ask you about, because, you know, when you take in all this mess and like, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, a lot of this mess has been revealed by the media mm-hmm. as opposed to government. Um, but when you take all of it in and we can assume that, you know, criminals are just always going to be criminals and a certain class of wealthy people are always going to try to camouflage their wealth. Mm-hmm. How do these activities, particularly talking about money laundering now, how do these activities affect regular people in Metro Vancouver or in this province? So what is like, what is the damage that's being done here? So I'm really glad you asked that because this is why I'm angry. Okay. And this is why I am speaking out about in the way that I am, because Mm -hmm. there is a human cost. And the cost is this. First off, We've had how many people die from fentanyl in this province? Thousands, mm-hmm. right? Um, we, we declare it a, a medical emergency. We have government scrambling to spend millions of dollars to try and address it through a variety of means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have families who have lost loved ones, including in my own community in Port Coquitlam, because of fentanyl, um, which really is about poisoning people mm-hmm. and it just the the to me the immorality of allowing thousands of our people to die and for billions of dollars to be created in profit mm-hmm. off of those deaths and then to turn around and take that profit and that money that's made off of those people's deaths and funnel it into our casinos, into our real estate, into a variety of other places, mm-hmm. um, which then in of itself has significant consequences, uh, is just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just, it's wrong. And, and why... We don't have more politicians saying, this is wrong and we're going to stop it. I mean, to me, it's just, it, I can't understand it. You know, I just, I, I can't understand it. Um, you know, and as Sam Cooper in particular has revealed, you know, this this model, that's they call it the Vancouver model now, right? right? Uh, of the fentanyl um, pouring into British Columbia, largely coming from China. Mm-hmm. Um as a fact, not as a theory, by the sure, way. Like, yeah. you know, it's as a fact. Um, and by the way, um, very little to nothing happens in that country without the uh, awareness of the government of China. Mm-hmm. Totalitarian regime, um, a one-party state. You know, they have a sense of what's going on in their country. Yeah. So Any what, industry is basically through relationships. Exactly, with the right? Yeah. The industry that is there, companies there, their business that like they're, you know, it's hand in glove sure. with the government. And so to have this situation where you have fentanyl coming into British Columbia, largely coming from China, 
um, killing thousands of our people, billions of dollars then being made off of that. And then those people turning around, taking that money, washing it clean in real estate. And let's just use real estate for an example, that mm-hmm. what, which then has this ripple effect mm-hmm. uh, throughout Metro Vancouver. And, and we've seen what's happened in the housing market. I, I mean, it's just, I can't get my head wrapped around. I just can't, I cannot understand why government doesn't look at this and say, this strikes at so many things. We're not going to rest until this is stopped. Sure. Yeah. Right. It, there, but I don't get any sense of urgency. You know, I get a sense of, well, we're, you know, we, we declare, we're always declaring things crises, by the way. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> we, have, we have this crisis and we have that crisis and, it's a first step. Uh, you know, That's a good first step. Sure, but to me, like a cri- when I have a crisis in our, like if we have a family crisis, it's an act. It's all hands on act. deck. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, everyone is going over to mom's house because we need to rally the troops yeah. as a family and do something. Fair and, and there's no, I don't get any sense of of that urgency. Yeah. You know, I don't get a. It's you know, it gets sort of passing mentions, but. And I think the the crazy part is, I mean, as you've mentioned, a lot of this has come out in the last year through people like. Sam Cooper, and I will also mention uh, uh, Eric Rankin at uh, mm-hmm. CBC has done some great work. Yeah. Um, but with that, I think for a long time, a lot of people in this city and this the greater Vancouver area have sensed that something sinister was happening, whether it was through things like empty homes or something mm-hmm. that you've commented on where you see a lot of new young kids driving, you know, luxury cars. Uh, there has been this suspicion that that something abnormal or something has changed. Sure. And now that we are starting to see, you know, the effect or, or the, the results of money laundering, how much has been laundered. And we're, we're still uncovering how much, right? We don't yeah. know the full details. Um, and, and now that we're seeing, you know, some of those proceeds then be put into the real estate market, especially in certain areas. Yeah. There is that question of, you know, what is government doing? Why aren't, and, and sure. does it fall on, is it easy to pass the buck in this case where maybe a municipality says, hey, to the provincial government, you got to look at this. The provincial government goes to the feds. You know, who is really responsible and whose jurisdiction yeah. does this fall well, under? Well, buck passing is a time-honored tradition in <laughs> politics, and, and there is a lot of that. Um, this is one of those things that has been right in front of our noses for a long time. Mm-hmm. And as with many things, the politicians are the last people to figure it out. You know, a lot of people have had You're this. W- you are a politician. Well, sir. I don't kind of, <laughs> I don't identify that way. <laughs> um, yeah. But people have caught on to this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, and I hear, have heard all, lots of stories, you know, people have, told me about um you know for instance i mean obviously given the fact that i'm a millennial sure um you know i've lots of friends who have been trying to get into the housing market Mm -hmm. and i mean some of the stories i've heard from them about um you know trying to um trying to like even buy an apartment or a condo and like their realtor coming back to them and be like oh i'm sorry um someone offered you know (laughs) <laughs> like $300,000 more ask in the asking price with yeah. no subjects. And, you know, they don't even care. They don't want to see the place. They just want to buy it. Like, I mean, 
there's you, you get like little stories here and there like of desperate buying. Yeah, right? you know, and and I as a counselor, I would hear it all the time from uh, from residents, particularly in in some of our sin, uh, single family neighborhoods where there's some transition going mm-hmm. on. And I would get phone calls saying like, "Hey, I'm getting knocks on my door from like." People being like, I want to buy your house. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, excuse me, my house isn't for sale. Well, how much? Yeah. You know? Uh, well, you know, and so there there was like all these weird things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that when you had this like just complete detachment of the housing market from local economic conditions, yeah. that there's other things that are at play here. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um and and one of the things that still bothers the hell out of me is the people who have downplayed this from day one are shameless. Like they, <laughs> they, they've never had to account for the fact that they have been so wrong yeah. about so much of this. I mean, when I, you know, I've been outspoken on this for quite some time. And I remember when I st- first started speaking about um, the role that... Um, foreign capital was playing in the housing market and and the fact that we were even seeing some of those impacts in Port Coquitlam mm-hmm. um, and in the in the suburbs, you know, you had people who are like, oh, you know, no, that's just racism. Right. Um, or no, it's, you know, oh, maybe just a tiny fraction. Um, and then, you know, you, we've kind of gone through this like process of more and more information coming out. and And even now, you know, when it's clear that there's been a huge amount of money laundering going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain people who are just like, I mean, if I had gone it so wrong, I would stop pontificating on on the issue. Sure. But, you know, that hasn't stopped some folks. What, why, what do you think their interests were in, in pushing back against this this thing that seems to make a lot of sense to a, to a lot of people? Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of people were not necessarily unhappy with the status quo. Yeah. I mean, particularly if um, you had a particular, you know, um, involvement in the real estate market. Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it is very easy to think that, you know, that roller coaster, you know, was just going to keep ticking up, 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 <laughs> up, 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 and, you know, there'd never be a dip. And it was yeah. sort of like kind of a let the good times roll mentality. Yeah. Um, and, never really stopping to pause and, and, and question what was really going on. Um, how is it that the housing market got so detached from local economic conditions, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so, you know, I think it largely is satisfaction with the status quo, you know, um, particularly at that time, remember there was really no rules around electoral financing mm-hmm. as well. Liberal Party was taking money hand over fist from the real estate industry yeah. and from development industry. So, you know, I guess from, you know, the perspective of the people who were in, in power and had the ability to address these issues, there wasn't a lot of incentive for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially if doing the right thing is not part of your calculus. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, I mean, you talk about the Liberal Party. Uh, as far as I remember, it took them a while to recognize that something was happening. I mean, people had sort of raised the alarm on this yeah. as early as 2013, 2014. Um, they didn't even acknowledge that, 
you know, the housing market was being overheated until 2016. Yeah. Uh, I think I was there on that budget day in Victoria, and they actually, that was the first time that they even announced that, you know, okay, the, the real estate market's really hot. We should start looking into this. And they, yeah. they announced a study or something. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Look out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, there's a study. It's, it's interesting because I, I think at the same time, I would agree with things that, you know, whether it's federal funding or provincial funding, we have stopped the construction of social housing or non-market housing. Mm-hmm. And that has certainly played uh, its role in terms of the housing market as well. And I think there's there's so many factors, but there have certainly been people sometimes tied to the real estate mar- uh, industry uh, in these think tanks or whatever that seem so adamant to saying things that do end up being disproven. I mean, I remember, uh, and I don't want to say who, but there was a think tank, we can call them, openly saying that, you know, real estate is not being marketed overseas. Mm-hmm. And that's being proved uh, demonstrably false. <laughs> yeah. It's like these people don't think the internet exists. Yeah. Like you can't go and Google and find out that, oh, yeah, actually, they there are lots of advertisements um, overseas, you know, in Mandarin that are yeah, and there's are, a lot of people here saying, that speak Mandarin that are saying, who can translate yeah, that. <laughs> come buy real estate in in uh, Metro Vancouver. Yeah, uh, it's there. We've sort of touched on this, and I and I want to go back to it. You know, there's been rumblings about a public inquiry. Um, it, I guess it's being discussed within the lens of the provincial government's internal politics right now. Um, but I want to ask you, why is a public inquiry important, and and why is it important in this case specifically? Okay, I think it's important for a, a number of reasons. Um, first, what we well, first and most obviously, you know, the the justice system has shown its inability to deal with these issues. Sure. So the collapse of the e pirate investigation uh, is, is probably you know um, example number one mm-hmm. of, of why. You need an inquiry. It's the only example you need in terms of why well, the justice system hasn't uh, uh, held up its part of the bargain. Exactly. I mean, all the reasons that are trotted out about why you shouldn't have an inquiry, I think, have, have been just completely refuted. And we mm-hmm. can talk about those. But in terms of why, it, it's because what is at play here is clearly systemic. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not, in my opinion, one-offs or like, ah, that one got away or ah, slipped through the crack. Like this is, okay, um, there's a breadth and depth of of corruption, um, rottenness mm-hmm. here that, that needs to be addressed. And I think the parallels to um, the situation in Quebec that led to the, the Charbonneau Commission mm-hmm. are, are, are very, um, are very accurate. And so in the Quebec, you had um, widespread corruption in the Quebec uh, construction industry mm-hmm. that was um, having a significant impact in a number of, um, uh, revealed through a number of ways. And so the Charbonneau Commission was uh, an inquiry um, that went and tackled that and, and had tremendous results. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you had the... Took down uh, a few mayors. Yeah, I mean, and that's what is needed. It took, it, you had people have to resign. Mm-hmm. You had people go to jail. You had charges. You had money. Uh, imagine this. You had money that was recovered for taxpayers. Mm. Um, and by the way, more money recovered for taxpayers than the Charbonneau Inquiry Commission actually cost. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, hmm. 
And, uh, you know, one of the things that happened just recently that I thought was very compelling was the, um, the deputy um, prosecutor, uh, chief prosecutor of the Charbonneau Commission, uh, who was largely in charge of the prosecutions and, and the work of the Charbonneau Commission, was interviewed about what's happening in Vancouver. Uh, and he was asked point blank whether you think a Charbonneau-style uh, commission mm-hmm. um, inquiry is needed here, and, and he, without hesitation, he said yes, right? <laughs> and 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 he also refuted a number of the things that we hear about why we can't have one. So, I already mentioned the cost because mm-hmm. you know sometimes because when politicians don't want to do something, then they're worried about the cost, <laughs> right? Very good point. O- otherwise, you know, whatever. Yeah, um, it's not their money. That's right. So. <laughs> So the cost, the sure. cost is, is thrown out as something. And, and he yeah. said, no, look, in, in the case of the Charbonneau Commission, it cost about $30 million. Um, and I believe the number he said at this point was they've recovered $95 million. Wow. Um, from what they've, from uncovering the corruption and, and the deals that were made and going after those who were involved. That's uh, a couple of homes here, right? Yeah, that's one or two. <laughs> um, so you've got that. Okay. It takes too long. Yeah. Right. Um, now, there's no doubt that inquiries uh, take some time, um, but you know the <laughs> it doesn't necessarily follow that this if we do this, this is going to be a you know multi-year process um, with nothing to show for it, right? And that's kind of the the comment that's put is like, oh, okay, we'll do this and we'll take years and, you know, we'll produce a report and, you know, it's going to not really get to the bottom of anything and, and mm. not change anything. Um, well, there's a couple of things on that. First, like the government who calls an inquiry has no re- a responsibility to have the appropriate terms of reference, to have the right people, to set it up in the right way to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. I, it just... I, it, <laughs> It just boggles my mind to hear a government say, well, we can't have it uh, an inquiry because it may not be effective. And, you know, it may produce a report that just collects collects uh, dust on the shelf. Yeah. When you're setting the scope of the report. (laughs) Don't put it on the damn shelf then, right? Like it's your responsibility to do something with it. So, you know, I I, I am convinced that uh, government could call an inquiry, could give it the appropriate powers. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I'm not into, I'm not a let's have lengthy reports type of guy. Sure. Right? Like, if I thought that that was the outcome, I wouldn't be in favor of it. Yeah. But you look at what happened in Quebec, you look at the comments of the deputy chief prosecutor, and, and he says, look, you can have an inquiry. It can work. It can work with prosecutors. It can work with police. It can compel people to testify. It can do all these other things that we need to have done uh, on a on a system wide basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has proven in Quebec's case to be able to hold people accountable, both criminally, uh, civilly. Um, again, having people uh, mayors having to resign, people mm-hmm. going to jail. I mean, that's what this situation cries out for. Sure. Uh, and so I think. You know the the excuses to not have an inquiry are just that they're excuses. So you've made a really compelling case for it, and I'm I'm all on board. One thing I don't understand though is, you know, if we're talking about such large scale crime in mm-hmm. the billions, and 
the lack of enforcement which allowed this crime to go unpunished, why is all the pressure on the provincial government for a public inquiry? Because a federal government can also do a, a public inquiry. So it would seem like just based on the scope of everything mm-hmm. uh, that maybe the federal government w- would want to be involved, especially when we're talking about um, you know global capital being moved around. Sure. So how come I don't hear anything about a federal inquiry? What's wh- Why do you think that yeah, is? Yeah, I, I think you should. Mm-hmm. I think you should be hearing about that. And you know, look, I've been asked that before, and my view is that the provincial and federal government should be working together on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you would kind of expect, yeah, right? Um, but what we have heard is like, they barely talk. So, <laughs> I mean, you, you may recall a week or two ago, um, there was much uh, backpatting on the fact that, well, now the federal government is going to make sure that the information that they have about money laundering is shared with the provincial government. Yeah. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> I mean, is it any wonder we're in the situation that we are? Yeah. Like that's, like we're trumpeting that, like that's a really good thing. I mean, like mm-hmm. how, how is that, how was that not already happening? Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that again was just shocking to find out that, you know, the, the federal government, the RCMP, um, had an estimate of uh, money laundering, had some knowledge about the, the the scope and scale of it in British Columbia, mm-hmm. and had passed the information along to an international organization uh, that assesses money laundering uh, across the globe, but didn't share that information with the provincial government. Right. And, and it's just like, you know, it, I just wanted to like bash my head against <laughs> a wall. And, and so, in you know, Specifically around um, inquiry, you know, I'm I won't pretend to be an expert on mm-hmm. how you know who should be doing it. My view is that um, both governments have a responsibility here, and the very least that we should be expecting is that they're sitting down and talking and figuring out together how they're going to make this happen. Sure. As a casual observer of politics, do you think it's fair to say that? It doesn't seem like the federal government is that interested. I mean, you yeah. don't, you, you just don't hear too much about them with regards to this issue. When, for me, again, it seems like a natural fit, especially if we are talking about money coming in from all all over yeah. the world into British Columbia, right? Yeah, it, I mean, and if you're a cynic, um, which of course I'm not, <laughs> uh, you would say, you know, if this was happening in Ontario, right? You know. Would the federal government be paying attention? Yeah, but it's just shocking to me that it it's not. I I mean I think we're seeing a little bit now. It's sort of getting on the radar, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it hasn't really been a topic of discussion yeah. um amongst the federal political circles. And I mean I I can't for the life of me understand why if if I'm a member of parliament from British Columbia. And we got what thirty plus of them. Yeah, you would think we there might be one brave soul amongst those uh, thirty plus people. Yeah, who would be raising hell about this? I mean, it it just seems like a no brainer. So, um, especially with an, an election coming up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like I I don't know. It's it's hard again. You know, I'm often asked like, you know, why aren't people doing this or why isn't and, and it's like. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I honestly don't know um, what is at play there that that causes people to uh, all of a sudden get really shy. Sure. 
On the topic of public inquiries and, and provincial public inquiries, just a quick sidebar question. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the the Plekis report from the Speaker of the House, do you think we should have a corruption inquiry as well? Or maybe is that not to the scale of something like a... Well, no, I mean, it. from what we know, it, it's pretty bad. I mean, mm-hmm. like, honestly, what I, I think... I think where we need to go is um, in Quebec again. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think, you know, in some ways, maybe Quebec is ahead of us because they went through a a very turbulent period of, you know, all sorts of kind of corruption type Mm -hmm. scandals coming up. And they have an anti-corruption unit, right? Mm -hmm. An anti-corruption office. um, And you just wonder if we shouldn't be having something like that in, in British Columbia. Yeah. Um, because it, it, this just seems like there's there's too many stories like this. And, you know, I think most people look at it this way. If this is what we do know, I mean, can you imagine what we don't know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's... It, and this it, is what... A, a lot of it is what the media has been investigating. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like that's... I mean, again, you're... And, and I have a, a huge amount of respect for the media because course, yeah. they're out there digging this up um, and bringing it to light. But but once if they they hadn't stumbled ab- across this, right? Like then it's just like you know the the gravy train would just continue to roll. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you know it seems to me that there is a need in this province for a uh, an independent anti corruption office sure. uh, that has some broad powers uh, to be able to investigate and then hold people accountable. Sure. Um, we're just at the point where, again, to me, too many examples. You're well past the point where you can say, oh, this is just, you know, oh, you know, there's always bad apples, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and there are, right? But, but bad apples happen because there's either a culture mm-hmm. that has taken root, which seems to be the case in, in the legislature, um, and because there's also not anyone checking. Yeah, there's no oversight. There, there's no, you know, there's no one looking over your shoulder to be like, what the hell, are, you know, what the hell do you have a wood splitter, <laughs> right? Like, you know. Yeah, why'd you use your um, your allocation for luggage to buy a watch? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, the, because... These, like these are things that no normal person would get away with. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Never. I mean, like this sort of stuff, which I believe is theft, mm-hmm. is taken so seriously by employers. I mean, if you could be working at a grocery store and take a chocolate bar mm-hmm. and you're gone. Yeah. Like. No ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah. Your, your, your ass is out the door. Yeah, because it, re- it represents a, a matter of principle more than the cost of the chocolate Sure, bar, because right? if you think it's okay to do that, yeah. then the principle is that all you need is the opportunity, and it goes from a chocolate bar to a wood splitter, to, <laughs> right. to luggage, to a watch, to yeah. whatever, right? Um, and there just seems to be this culture in the province that, um, that certain elected officials and certain people in government think that the rules that apply to everyone else 
don't apply to them. So and, what, and that's what we need to fix. So what would you say to one of your constituents who feels that the rules for regular people are there, but for a certain cash class or a certain political class, those rules don't exist? Because I think there is a, a loss of confidence amongst a lot of people who feel like, you know, there are two sets of rules or multiple sets mm-hmm. of rules. Um, and you can go your whole life doing everything well, you know, everything's on the up and up, you're paying your taxes, um, you're being a good person, but you are always under the scrutiny of a certain set of rules mm-hmm. that some people just aren't. Yeah. What would you say to that person? I would say I agree with them. Yeah. Uh, and I'm fighting like hell to change it. Um, it, it. It just really offends me. It offends my my sense of, uh, of fairness. It offends my my sense of duty and mm-hmm. what our responsibility as elected officials is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're up, people are right to draw that conclusion. I mean, you hear these stories about like the, the CRA comes down like a ton of bricks on a, you know, on a, a waiter or waitress who doesn't properly declare their tips. Yeah. Right. You hear these stories all the time or, you know, God help you if you make a mistake on your income tax. <laughs> and so like, you know, no mercy is is given to the regular person. Yeah. But yeah, you know, but there is. There's just this complete different set of rules that um, that the sort of elites, whether they be political elite or mm-hmm. um, or you know the or the very wealthy, like they just they don't have to adhere to the rules that the rest of us do. Yeah. And that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that, and that's that's the frustration. I mean, uh, as someone who has purchased a home, I I feel like I have to do everything by the book, and I have to go out of my way to prove that I have a legitimate income and everything's yep. on the up and up. And when I do all this stuff, I even wonder, like, how would you hide this? Because I only have one bank account, you know. I'm not a very complicated person, <laughs> <laughs> and I just wonder, like, you know, how do these people and all these stories that you hear about? Um, you know, someone buying a multi-million dollar mansion but not declaring any income. Yeah. How does it? How does it fly? Yeah, right? it, I, I know. It just, it, like, it, it is. I keep using the word astounding. <laughs> it astounds you. Like, is there just so little attention paid? I mean, there was a, an example of this that I, I just like again blew my mind, uh, and it had a poor Coquitlam connection. There was a gentleman who. Um, uh, who got permanent residency and um, he came here from China and mm-hmm. he was the CEO of um, I think the third largest textile company in China. Wow. Um, and, uh, and he got permanent residency, um, came here, brought his family over, um, started moving uh, money over and, and really went on a Metro Vancouver spending spree with real estate. Like sure. buying up all sorts of real estate, uh, including a, a parcel in Port Coquitlam. And what was interesting was eventually he had a disagreement with a, a partner and they ended up in court. And so when they ended up in court, all this information came out and was revealed. Oh, okay. And one hmm. of the things that was revealed is that when he applied for permanent residency, he declared a worldwide income of $96.11. Wow. And he is the CEO of the third largest textile company in China. And it's like, who's not doing their job? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how is that even 
That's incredible. Possible. Yeah, that really is incredible. And so here's my next question, because uh, I, I want to go down a certain path, and you've already alluded to this as well. What about people domestically that are doing this? What about domestic sure. money launderers, um, people who are evading taxes domestically? Um, I mean, we can't pretend that they don't exist, because they no, of do. Course. Are they just not on the scale in terms of what we've seen in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, whatever it's been? Um, or have foreign capital operations just been exploiting the laws that we have and and the lack of enforcement that domestic criminals have been enjoying for so long? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I you know, am all for going after those folks uh, who do this sort of behavior domestically with the same vigor that we should be going after everyone mm-hmm. um, because it's uh, it, it's the principle, yeah. right? Um, you know, I, I think that um, part of it is that the the foreign capital just has an, an ability to maneuver um, all over the world that probably allows them to take advantage of, of certain loopholes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I'm very much in, in favor of going after all of this bad behavior, regardless of, of where it originates from, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that has been my response to to those folks who, um, and there have, hasn't been a lot of it, but, you know, some people who would say that, um, you know, there's a, a, a racist element to, sure. um, yeah. to focusing so much on, on foreign money laundering on, on foreign capital. And the reality is, is that it is largely uh, based out of China. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a reality. I mean, that's a, facts are stubborn things, and that's a fact, right? Yeah. Um, and my response is, the China part is irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. It could be Australia, it could be New Zealand, it could be Europe, it could be the United States. Like, that part, that's not the part that's relevant. Yeah, It's, it's what's, what they're doing. That is the part that's relevant. I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with you, um, and and I think that's a it's a legitimate concern for a lot of people in, as well in terms of an anti-Chinese sentiment. Not saying that you are or people that are focusing on this is, but certainly maybe as a reminder that most Chinese immigrants to this country and to Vancouver are not doing this type of activity, right? Absolutely. And because I'll I'll often find myself in a political discussion talking about money laundering. And you will get, especially on the internet and on Twitter and whatever, and you will get suddenly these racist elements and you're like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 I'm yeah. not <laughs> talking to you or talking with you. Yeah. I'm talking about something else. And so I can understand why certain groups, and, and as a person of color myself, I can certainly understand why some groups, um, while in principle they fully agree with taking out these criminals and, and getting them out of our real estate market, getting out of uh, getting them out of our financial institutions, um, also are kind of worried that, that this will spark racism against their groups, which we've seen historically. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I've had interesting conversations about this with my best friend who is Chinese. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and it's interesting, his, his dad, um, who immigrated to uh, Vancouver from China, um, he's the person who probably cheers me on the most. Yeah. And, And he's like, you know, you know, he tells his story of, of coming to this country, mm-hmm. of following the rules, of doing the right thing, and and helping his family get ahead, mm-hmm. um, 
And I think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, Absolutely. you go back enough generations, that's what all of our families Absolutely. have done, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've, it's been interesting. I have found that that some of the strongest support I've had um, comes from Asian communities, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think they're as offended, if not more, by this behavior than uh, than everyone. Absolutely, right? yeah. One thing I want to ask you, because this is another question that usually comes up in this foreign money laundering debate, mm-hmm. and and especially when we bring in this element of of racism and you know, is this anti Chinese sentiment? Should someone who earns capital legally, but outside of Canada, be able to purchase a home here? So my view is that we need to, the moment of in time that we find ourselves in, um, I think we need to tread very carefully mm-hmm. um, with respect to, to that issue. I, I look at what Australia and New Zealand has has done, mm-hmm. and I think it makes, to me, a lot of sense. You know, they've put restrictions on the type of real estate that foreign capital uh, can can purchase. Sure, right, uh, and and I think that those are things that we need to be looking very closely at and, and consider because, you know, the the magnitude of the problem is, is so big mm-hmm. that I, I think it does require something more dramatic like that. Okay. Um, just saying like housing in the province of British Columbia is not going to be available as a uh, sort of global commodity. Global or... commodity, yeah. right? Uh, and so if you're, if that's where your money comes from, then you might have access to certain types of housing. I believe in, um, I believe it's in Australia, actually. Um, what they've done is they've said, okay, if you're purchase, if you're, uh, have foreign capital, you can only purchase new housing stock. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. So that the existing housing stock that is there, uh, is not available to foreign capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to look very closely at places like Australia and New Zealand and others because they've actually been dealing with these types of issues for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should go and learn those lessons yeah. um, and, and consider that very carefully. Uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit I haven't, you know, fully gone, you know, <laughs> spent hours sure, and hours yeah. researching what all the consequences of, of those decisions are. Um but I, I fundamentally believe that um, that housing in our province should be for the people who reside, work, mm-hmm. and pay taxes in our province. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even when we think of, you know, immigration, mm-hmm. uh, the the principle behind immigration is to strengthen your labor force. That's basically what it is. I mean, putting aside humanitarian yep. uh, immigration, but that's the whole point. I mean, you want people to come here, bring their families, but they're working here, right? And maybe they come in with some money, but they're earning money here and they're, they're adding to productivity because we simply don't have the domestic population growth to sustain economic growth without growing our labor force through immigration. Sure, and uh, you know, it, it's been... 
immigration is one of those issues that I feel like we haven't been able to have a, an adult conversation about. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime it comes up, it, it just, it gets, you know, you get kind of two sides entrenched. They kind of caricature each other's position. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, you just, you go nowhere. Yeah. Um, look, I think it's perfectly reasonable to take a position that we should consider what is the appropriate level of immigration to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, the trajectory has been uh, steady increases. Um, and, you know, we're under the uh, Trudeau government, we are going to allow a record number of uh, immigrants into the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's possible to disagree with that without being xenophobic or anti-immigrant. I mean, sure. immigration historically in this country has ebbed and flowed based on a, a number of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am concerned about some of the immigration schemes that have existed, um, you know, particularly around this uh, investment investor immigration program, right. which essentially has sold Canadian citizenship mm-hmm. or residency to the highest bidder. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's, you know, you, you hear these stories about people with, um, you know, a dozen passports or like, you know, the, the very, the, you know, the global, uh, the very global elite um, being able to kind of, oh, I think I'll, I'll have a Canadian citizenship. I'll have an Australian citizenship. I think I'll maybe have an EU citizenship mm-hmm. just in case. And, you know, I, I just think that there's, there's citizenship in a country needs to be more than that. It needs to mean more than that. It, it, it can't be just a, a citizenship of convenience. So you can decide, you know, which of your half dozen passports are you going to travel on today? Sure. Um, you know, and, and so we're kidding ourselves if we think there isn't abuse and fraud going on in the Canadian immigration system. Uh, and, and so I think we need to be able to look at that and to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think we also need to be able to openly discuss what are the, the impacts of Immig- uh, of increasing immigration levels because, you know, absolutely there's benefits that come from that. There's also issues that come from that that we have to deal with. I mean, one of the issues is where are we going to put everyone? Yeah. I mean, right now we're we're dealing with uh, housing, obviously, uh, issues right across Metro Vancouver. Um, and, you know, I read a report um, just the other day and it talked about the number of people who will come to Metro Vancouver uh, in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years um, through immigration and how much additional housing supply that will require. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, those are real issues um, and they have ramifications. And, and we, you know, we don't really delve into them and, and have, you know, those conversations. And I, I think we, we need to be able to have that. Sure. Well, I feel like that's a whole topic on its own. It is. <laughs> so, so let's get back to someone who has a lot of passports, apparently. Um, <laughs> let, let's talk about uh, this lady uh, at Huawei. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the request of U.S. justice officials, the RCMP arrested Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Weizhou, 
uh, on the allegations of bank fraud regarding some business that Huawei did with Iran, uh, which is a breach of U.S. sanctions. Now, what's interesting to me is that this arrest, no one's talking about the business with Iran. This arrest kind of opened up this can of worms about whether Canada should be using Huawei in building our 5G networks. Now, obviously, Canada has a lot of business interests in China. Um, And then you had this weird incident where the now-resigned Canadian ambassador to China was making several arguments on why the case should be dropped. So I want to ask you, because this is something that you were commenting on as well, you know, should Canada be doing business with Huawei? No. Um, And I say that based on the fact um, that it is well documented that this company does not behave like a normal company, like Mm -hmm. a company, you know, this isn't like TELUS. Right. Right. Which is annoying when you're on hold with them for a really long time, but this is a whole different other, you know, a whole different other uh, ball game. You know, there is a reason why the UK, uh, Europe, a number of countries in the European Union, mm-hmm. the United States, uh, again Australia, uh, and and other countries who Canada is very much aligned with, are saying we're not going to let you in, mm-hmm. right? Because of the well-documented concerns that this company acts as an arm of the Chinese government, is engaged in uh, information collection, mm-hmm. uh, corporate espionage, uh, intelligence gathering, right. uh, and, and any, you know, a, a huge number of things. Um, and so we really need to ask ourselves when, you know, I kind of think about when all your friends are going one way, <laughs> You know, you, you this kind of a gives you a pause there and say, okay, well, why are they doing that? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I think when you and why have we been going? And why way? have we been going the other way? Yeah. Right. And, and so I just think the, the concerns are are well documented. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're very well founded. I mean, I don't know if you saw just the other day the Israeli it came up, uh, consultant who. Uh, Oh, sorry, there was, a, there was a consultant recently that came out with this report about a, a data hack in Ottawa. Um, yeah. But, but please, I, I, share I saw yours. That. Well, yeah. I, okay, so <laughs> we, we all have them, right? Yeah. And so one of um, the pieces of information that Huawei, that came out about Huawei is that their compensation model mm-hmm. for their employees <laughs> included a financial incentive for the collection of information. Interesting. Um, and so again, I mean, I think you look at that, um, and you just say, no, there's, what do we have to gain? Like, you know, we we have a whole hell of a lot to lose. But here's my question to that. I mean, China represents four to 5% of our exports. Mm -hmm. doesn't sound like a big number, but they are a distant second, uh, largest export market when, when it comes to Canada. And that represents about 20 to $25 billion a year in Mm -hmm. terms of product that we sell overseas. We also import 50 to $60 billion worth of goods from China. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's a China's benefit. Well, actually, you know, it helps to lower the cost of a lot of consumer goods. Mm-hmm. Is this aggressive stance against Huawei in our 5G networks and other telecoms infrastructure worth the risk of all of this business that we do that does have benefits to real Canadians? Sure. I think that, I mean, it's part of the problem is we have put ourselves in a position 
where we have become so dependent mm-hmm. that we have to like capitulate. Yeah, we have to just acquiesce on whether I think very legitimate concerns around uh, privacy and uh, information gathering. Um, our first responsibility should be to the people of this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I just reject the idea that because the government of China may not like it, that therefore it's okay, well, we're just done talking and yeah. they don't like it, so we have to do it. That is such a, that's the sign of such an unhealthy relationship. Yeah. And that has been allowed to take root um, over decades. And so we have gotten ourselves to a, in a place where we have a, a very, very unhealthy relationship with China. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, I mean, think about it. It's, it's like we are following the rule of law with respect to the Huawei executive, mm-hmm. um, the same way we would in any other circumstance. Yeah. And they then turn around and just start arbitrarily detaining Canadians. Yeah. You know, and 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 some people look at that and say, oh, geez, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have followed the rule of law because now they're <laughs> angry at us. Like, I mean, that is just, it, again, it is the sign of an extremely unhealthy relationship. So, yeah. And uh, it wasn't I, even our arrest. I mean, we no. were bound to, to this extradition treaty That's with right. the United States. We had to do it. There was no way out of it. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, I mean, I think we need to have a, a reset in our relationship with China. I, I'm not saying we, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to engage with you. I mean, that's not what I'm arguing at all. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying we need to get a, uh, get to a place where they're, it's a much more mutually beneficial, respectful, healthy, balanced relationship. Sure. And I think that that's what is missing. And that's what this whole episode has demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. But if we keep going down the path that we're going, mm-hmm. um, I, I really worry about where that takes us. Um, because, look... China is again is an authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. It ha- it it is not a country that shares Canadian values, despite what uh, former ambassador thinks or or said. Um, it's a country that has uh, widespread human rights abuses. It's a country that, you know, by some estimates, currently has a million people in what are charitably described as re-education camps. Right. Uh, and so this is not a country that behaves in the same way that Canada does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a country that is, whose government is very open about their aims. You know, that they, they're not really shy about saying what they want to do. They're looking to expand sure. their global influence. Um, you know, and you, you only need to look at what they're doing. The government of China is doing in Africa where they are acquiring uh, the natural resources of that country, buying up mining and min- mineral rights, um, mm-hmm. you know, to the to the huge detriment of local populations who are, you know, are, are facing un, uh, just unspoken sort of horrific treatment uh, at the hands of uh, the government of China or companies that are controlled by the government of China. 
And I think you just need to be, you know, much less naive sure. and much less Pollyanna-ish about our relationship with them and thinking that, you know, um, just acquiescing to their every demand is somehow beneficial to our country. So let's let's talk about this larger diplomatic trade relationship that Canada has with China. You've said the following, well, you tweeted the following, uh, and I'll quote you here. <clears throat> At the end of 2018, we've seen small cracks in the unfaltering, unquestioning devotion of much of Canada's political and business elite to the idea that whatever furthers the interests of China is good for our country. Here's to fracturing it, here's to it fracturing into a thousand pieces in 2019. That's a pipe bomb. That is some <laughs> some interesting because no one is talking like that, right? Yeah. And 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 it's a very uh, it's an interesting statement. I think certainly people would agree that we have to rethink this this relationship. So on the basis of that, you know, what do you think Canada and China's international relations should look like on the premise that Canada is, or sorry, on the premise that China is that authoritarian, quote unquote, communist regime that it is? Because mm -hmm. we can't change that. Right? Well, it's been interesting. There's been, you know, in around the early 90s to the mid 90s, there was this idea that if you welcome China to the to the world community, so to speak, if mm -hmm. you allowed them into the World Trade Organization and if you um, sort of allowed them to uh, integrate into the world economically and financially in a way that they hadn't previously uh, been able to do, that what would follow would be a liberalization of the government's treatment of its uh, citizens and, mm -hmm. and that they would start to behave um in a in a different manner, and the same thinking with with Russia. As Absolutely, well. and, and and what we can say irrefutably is that that's failed. Mm -hmm. That that has not been the case. That is not what has occurred. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think we we just need to walk away from that orthodoxy that says, you know, if we allow them to, you know, make a lot of money, that they'll maybe start to treat people a little bit better sure. um, and, and so I, I think they need to be held much more accountable look as much as Canada has allowed itself to our, our the government of Canada has put its, ourselves in the position where we're you know very much economically dependent or, or tied to China as much as that is the case it is also the case that China needs access to the world like they also need us. Sure. So if, you know, it would require a united front, mm -hmm. you know, it can't be Canada on its own, but uh, in concert with the United States, which I know is difficult these days. And, and <laughs> you know, that's sort of the, the wild card in a lot of this, but yeah. in concert with the United States and the United Kingdom, um, the European Union, mm -hmm. um, you know, together we still form you know, a, a sig we, we still have significant influence. Yeah. Um, and whether it be China or Russia or, or other places, like there's still a huge advantage mm -hmm. to those country being able to have access to our markets and to be able to integrate with us economically. And what I'm saying is we need to get more for the, for that 
opportunity Mm -hmm. for them to have that opportunity for them to have that ability we have to have more to show for it um, than what we have now because my observation is is what we have now is um, zero progress in terms of their bad behavior around the world and within their own countries Mm -hmm. Um, we have allowed them to uh, establish a, a huge economic footprint um, within our own country. Uh, and I think there are legitimate questions, and I certainly question the um, the advisability of that um, mm-hmm. in a number of areas. Um, and so we've achieved that, or sorry, they've achieved that rather. And what have we achieved? Right? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, like, yeah. it's funny, I think about this, I don't begrudge the the leaders of the government of China going out and, and advocating strongly for what they believe is in the best interest of their country. Sure, I yeah. just wish our leaders would do the same, you know? And, and I think about, I'll, I'll give you an example where I, I see just the, the faulty logic. Um, you may remember, I think it would probably be about five or six years ago now, um, Christy Clark, then premier, went to China. Mm-hmm. And with much fanfare, she announced uh, this um, new, you know, uh, Canada Starts Here, I think was the name okay. of the program. And it was all about, you know, sort of economic investment. And, and she did this big announcement in, in China, uh, and they signed a deal with the government of China, and they were going to invest in British Columbia and all this sort of stuff. And what flowed from that was uh, a move by a mining company called HD Mining, um, which was essentially, again, owned by the government of China, as, again, most companies are. Mm-hmm. Um, and HD Mining was going to open a mine in northern British Columbia. Okay. Okay. And so, you know, there was lots of fanfare. Oh, isn't that great? And, you know, all this, you know, investment and jobs and all this sort of stuff. Well, what that company did and, and what the government of British Columbia under Christy Clark agreed to, and actually the federal government gave their blessing as well under Stephen Harper was, okay, you can come open a mine in British Columbia and, uh, and make that investment. Oh, and sure, we'll also allow you to bring in your own people to work at the mine. Oh, interesting. And okay. so... There is, so, you know, we now have this situation where, and and it's kind of had, it it never really got off the ground. There, there has been some, but they, the provincial and federal government granted, um, permits so that HD mining, who's going to operate this mine in Northern British Columbia could bring in several hundred temporary foreign workers from China to work in the mine. Hmm. And they were going to be paid significantly less than, uh, British Colombians wow. would have made that you know no benefits, all this sort of stuff, and you know by the way the Chinese mining industry has the worst uh, health and safety record in in the entire world. I mm-hmm. mean, just people are killed there in the mining industry on a basically daily basis, and you know so to me that that just like you know, completely encapsulates what's wrong. So it's like this resource. That belongs to the people of British Columbia, yeah. that belongs to Canadians, yeah. is is sold off to 
a state-run, state-owned company in China. They're going to get the benefit of it. Oh, and by the way, they're not even going to employ British Columbians or Canadians right. because, God forbid, they might have to pay a decent wage. So they're going to, they actually thought it would be, imagine this, it was actually cheaper for them to bring in hundreds of temporary foreign workers from China to employ them at the mine than it would be to have employed British Columbians or Canadians. And I I just look at that and I think there's so much wrong with that. Yeah. Um, And and that's where we're at. But it uh, made for a great photo op, didn't it? Well, that's, (laughs) that's right. And you know, for some politicians, that's what counts. Yeah. Um, Just as we wrap up here, you know, one of the big themes of last year and what we're talking about right now, diplomatically at least, is this question of who Canada and who we should be doing business with. Mm-hmm. Let's not beat around the bush here. We sell arms to some regimes. And arms, by their function and their purpose, are meant to kill people. We also share technology with some regimes. And some of that tech might not be employed in the most uh, worthy ways, to put it nicely. Certainly when it comes to Canada, I mean, we are not perfect. We have income inequality. Mm -hmm. We have a justice system that many people feel is rigged, as we've talked about today with, with the money laundering crisis. We have so much to do when it comes to our First Nations. I mean, there are communities in this country that don't have access to clean water or running water. But in an international climate where there is a tug of war between economic liberalization and nationalism. Without putting ourselves too much on the on the higher ground that we, we are the best, ultimately, should we be giving greater consideration to who we do business with? I, I think absolutely. I mean, um, and I'm not Pollyanna-ish about all this stuff, mm-hmm. um, but I think we have to live up to our our values we have to do a better job of of living up to our values um and i you know i actually believe in the universality of of human rights sure uh and that you know i would hope any elected official in this country does (laughs) sure but but their actions would suggest that they don't because you know some people are viewed as uh disposable or you know so often we we're just able to rationalize everything, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's none of our business, um, you know. And I believe that we are so blessed to live in this country, mm-hmm. um, and with that comes, I think, a, a moral responsibility to try and make the world a kinder, gentler place for people who don't have the same fortune that we do mm-hmm. to have been born in this country, you know, and I became a a dad two years ago. And, you know, I think about my son, I think about all the opportunity that he has because he was fortunate enough to be born here. Absolutely, um, yeah. And he's going to have to work hard um, and make good decisions and all that stuff. And, you know. But that's a and, big and head start to be born in Port that's, that's right. And, you know, and his mom and I will, you know, We'll do our best to support him yeah. in all of that. But you're right. He has a lot of opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and there's millions of children around the world who who don't 
have those same opportunities. So, you know, I just think we need to move the needle a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm not, I know we're not going to all start singing Kumbaya and, you know, know, the world is going to be a perfect place. But I think for countries like Canada, when we have an opportunity um, to move the needle, um, we have to do that. Because if we don't, who will? I mean, what other countries, you know, if not, you know, countries like Canada, Mm -hmm. if they don't insist upon better human rights, um, uh, upon better labor rights, upon people being treated with, you know, more dignity, more respect, if Canada and countries like Canada don't insist upon that, Mm -hmm. who else will? Yeah. You know? Uh, and so that's that's my view. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, b- before we leave here, what what do you say to critics who see on TV, <laughs> or they see they hear you on the uh, the Linda Steele show, and they say, you know what, you should just focus on Port Coelho. Mm-hmm. Um, I say a couple of things. One, uh, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> so you know, because I'm here talking to you and we're having a conversation. Um, you know, doesn't mean that Porco Quitlam is, is falling apart sure. because I'm not paying attention. And I'm, I, I'm, yeah. I'm in that area uh, every day and I can attest to that. It's yeah. very nice. Well, and, and, but no, I think that this is really important and this is part of the approach I've taken as mayor. Um, I believe that the city has a responsibility to get the basics right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that first and foremost, before you do anything else, you know, you have a responsibility to deliver on the core kind of mandate of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in Port Coquitlam, I'm really pleased uh, that we are very much focused on that. So we're focused on fixing potholes. We're focused on painting lines so people can see them when it's dark and rainy, on having improved street lighting, having improved uh, sidewalks and pedestrian connections, mm-hmm. uh, on having more crosswalks, uh, on the real nuts and bolts of of a city and i think that it it is really important that you get that stuff right and that was one of the messages i heard very clearly from the ele- um from residents during the election and so the, in park Quitlam over the next two years we'll actually be investing 87 million dollars in in capital works to uh to give some uh tlc to our community to to upgrade those real basic uh core um, functions and in- infrastructure of the municipality. And that's an unprecedented amount of money that we're investing. Wow. And I think people, um, I think people appreciate that. That's, you know, that's what they go and send their, their tax dollars for is for Absolutely. things like that, for, you know, good parks and we're doing park upgrades. So, um, so I'm very much focused on that. Um, mm-hmm. That is my primary responsibility and it, it might not be the flashiest thing, um, but it is the job that I've been elected to do, and it is the job of the municipality. Um, and I think when people see that you're doing that sort of basic stuff and getting it right, um, then they don't mind you know, hearing you on Linda Steele or <laughs> hearing you on podcasts talking about Absolutely. other things because yeah. they know... You know, they know that you're you're getting the basics right. You're doing the job that you're elected to do. Mm-hmm. And this other stuff I'm doing uh, where I'm speaking out, it's about fighting for people 
who live in Port Coquitlam Absolutely. because they're impacted by all of these things that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate that. And one thing I want to say, and one thing I should say to more guests is that I really appreciate you being here and being so open and honest and authentic. Uh, something that's happened recently to me with regards to this show is I will pitch this show to a certain politician or a certain business person and their eyes will kind of light up like, this sounds great. Yeah. And then you kind of see the wheels turning of them <laughs> saying, oh, I don't know if I can speak for a full hour. Oh, I don't know. Like maybe I'm going to say something and it's going to be taken <laughs> out of context. Yeah. And they start to get really worried. And, you know, they don't – and I'm small potatoes. Anyone can say no to my show. I'm totally fine with that. But the reasoning of why they may be stepping away or, or saying no after showing some enthusiasm – really gets to me because when we think about social media, when we think about just the internet as a whole, it's about you being able to get your message directly to people. Mm -hmm. And I understand that, listen, we don't want the prime minister directly on Twitter. I understand that when you have a big political machine... Doesn't work well for the president. (laughs) No, exactly, right? (laughs) And, And I understand that we have big political machinery where political messaging is going to be filtered through comms teams and yep. through the you know specialized staff that are, that are going to say the right thing but i almost feel like in our political culture we've gotten to a point where things get so filtered that they mean nothing i i couldn't agree with you more and, and that's why we have a federal election where you have three guys who are really uninspired and i you know what i like justin and i like i should say prime minister trudeau and i like Jagmeet. And I, I don't really know Andrew Shear or, or much about him, but I'd be willing to give him a shot. But every time I see them on TV, they're just so boring. And it, what they say means nothing. Yep. And I'm hoping that not only you as, as someone in terms of breaking barriers down for millennials, but you and others breaking down barriers for what we accept and what we expect of our politicians. And we want openness. We want authenticity, even if we are talking about radioactive subjects, but to be mature enough to have that. And certainly the uh, the electorate and, and normal people, regular people, also have a responsibility to not be outraged over every single thing <laughs> and really prioritize things. Um, but I do just appreciate the fact that, hey, you're here. You were very open. You were very honest. Um, and, and I do wish you the best in, in all your future endeavors, whatever they may be. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. If I can just have a little comment on that. Absolutely, please. Um, I think this is why we have fewer and fewer people participating in elections mm-hmm. and in politics in general. Um, you know, you have politicians who come on the TV or you hear them speak and like it almost doesn't matter which party they are from. They all kind of sound the same. Yeah. We're in this, you know, period of time where it's just, it's it's like robotic, you yeah. know, and, and some consultant or PR person has like preloaded this talking points, you yeah. know. Everyone's it, working for all Canadians. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. and like, it's just like. Real solutions, not yeah, ideology. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's it, a lot it, of uh, I, catchphrases. Yeah. I just, you know, I find it so so boring and mm-hmm. you know you know they speak in like riddles where you don't actually you know they're saying all this stuff without actually saying anything yeah that's my hope. um and we got to get back to a place where um politicians our elected leaders can say what they mean 
say what they think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and you know, you can analyze kind of how we got. You know, is it you know, the media are like waiting for a gotcha moment? But you know, I I, I don't blame the media. Um, you know, I, I think that politicians are are largely to blame, and there's been this kind of rise of this consultant class in politics mm-hmm. of of people who, you know, kind of they they travel from like province to province and yeah. they come in and they're going to run the campaign and, you know, they, they really just sort of take people who I, I think many of who get into politics with good intentions Absolutely, and, and yeah. sort of are quite authentic and then sort of try and morph them and mold them into what they think people want. Yeah. Which um, end up being these like, mealy mouth politicians which is what nobody wants yeah and it, and it just so and it you know and it just comes across as so phony and so you know and it i think the takeaway from that for people is like does this even matter yeah you know what i mean like and that's I, how you get people disengaged that's yeah how you i think it totally out. i think it totally breeds that um you know and, and so i i think it's uh you know you have to be i mean you don't want to be some you know wild wild man he was just you know sure that on you know again if if trump is kind of the the extreme end of just like the stream of consciousness from his uh you know small little brain out uh, uh to twitter but also a liar right yeah like... well that's you know <laughs> t- totally right so again i reject the comparison that you yeah. know again in my earlier defense of populism um so but i think that people respond to um, to authenticity, to, to, to realness, um, you know, and, uh, I, I haven't, you know, uh, you know, I can honestly, I can honestly say I have not changed who I am since I've been elected mayor or during my time in politics. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I am who I am and some people will look at that like that. Others won't. That's good. That's what it's all about. Um, and that's the way it should be. Well, I appreciate that. How do people stay in touch with you? You got an active Twitter account, right? I do. I can follow me at Brad West Poco on okay. Twitter, um, and uh, active uh, on Facebook as well. I've got uh, Brad West Port Coquitlam Mayor Facebook page. Awesome. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not hard to find. So <laughs> come down to Port Coquitlam and uh, you know, check out our beautiful community. We're just it's a tremendous place. We get. More and more people, young families moving to the community. and uh, Also, shout out to Ma Now Thai restaurant. That's It's yeah. the best Thai food in Metro Vancouver. I'm telling you now. It's it, amazing. Absolutely. Um, I have frequented them often. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, there's uh, we've got a number of really cool places in, in Polka. We've got a, um, a craft brew scene um, that is a craft brewery scene that's emerging that... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, has some great beer and uh, there's a lot of good things happening in Poco. People cool. should check it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, before we sign off, if you made it to the end, and of course you did, because that whole episode was fire with Mayor West, please follow and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. And you know what? Drop me a, a review. Throw me a couple of stars. I'd really appreciate that. This is a bi-weekly podcast, and I promise that the next few weeks are going to be stacked. Casey Joe Luce from 1027 The Peak will be here to talk about mental wellness, the universe, and its secrets, and some poetry she's recently done. 
Dr. Caitlin Dunn will be here. And if you haven't heard of her, she's been featured on Global TV and will be featured in a March edition of McLean's Magazine. She's going to be teaching me about fertility and infertility, a subject I never thought I'd have an interest in, but I've read a couple of her articles, and she's really fascinating. And I also just booked the powerful Linda Steele. So stay tuned. But for now, I want to thank our current guest. He is the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Mayor Brad West. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.